continuing our series on the names of Jesus, as they're found in Isaiah chapter 9. And as we've mentioned for the past couple of weeks, Isaiah writes uh, chapter 9 around 730 B.C. It is a time of extreme chaos, stress, and destruction for the northern kingdom of Israel because they're being attacked by the Assyrians. And in this dark time, Isaiah prophesies a word of hope. Isaiah chapter 9, and writes us around 730 B.C., about 730 years before the birth of Jesus. He says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the word of the Lord. It was common in those days for Middle Eastern rulers to refer themselves as a father, a father to the people. And so this series here, we're taking a look at the names of Jesus as prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We talked about Wonderful Counselor. We talked about Mighty God. Today we're talking about Everlasting Father. Again, it's a common term for rulers in the Middle East, but not so common for rulers in Israel and Judah. And the reason is because for them, God was supposed to be their father. The kings were not to refer to themselves as the father to the people because that was God's job. Every now and then you see this in the Old Testament, but not very often. What you never see in the Old Testament is a ruler referring to himself as everlasting father. It never happens. Because that's a term reserved for God. And so here in Isaiah chapter 9, we have a beautiful image of the Trinity, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, prophesied way back in 730 B.C. It's a great term. It's a term that denotes a benevolent ruler, like a father. And it's a term that also denotes an eternal ruler, like like God. As the theologians like to say, it's a term pregnant with meaning. They use that term a lot. I don't know why, but they like to use that term. It's pregnant with meaning, right? It has huge implications. Because a father, I believe, is designed to protect his family. A father is designed to sacrifice for his family. And a father, I'm taking a little bit of a risk here, 
I think a father is designed to let their kids struggle. I don't know how else to put it, but dads are more comfortable with the level of stupid than moms are. <laughs> they just are. They'll be like, the kid's making a jump for the bike. Yeah, I wonder how this is going to end up, right? They'll let him do it. Like, shit, go for it. It's not going to end well, but it's going to be fun to watch. Let's see what happens here. And you never know. They might just pull it off. It'll be awesome. And again, I'm speaking with generalities here, but, but dads are more comfortable with risk. They're more comfortable with letting their kids struggle. And I think they might even be more comfortable with letting their kids fail. Because good parents let kids struggle. Good parents let kids fail. And they pick them back up again. That's what good parenting does. Now sometimes dads, we go a little too far and the kids fail too much. And it hurts. But other times, we catch them just right in the nick of time. Get the video here. Jesus began to explain to his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and that he must, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus tells his followers, he's going to die. He's going to die for the people like a sacrificial lamb on the third day be raised to life. And Peter says, never, Lord. He tells God in the flesh, no. Which is always a bad idea. <laughs> Jesus gives Peter one of the most strongest rebukes he's ever given. And then he says this, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your instrument of torture and follow. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Tough words. The connotation of the text is that those who follow Jesus will suffer for the sake of the gospel. And that hasn't happened here. Not really. But it happens all over the world. This past week, a Chinese pastor, Pastor Wang Yi, was arrested along with 100 members of his congregation. That was last Sunday. So this Sunday, that same church is worshiping without a pastor, and one-fifth one of the congregation is gone. They're in jail. How many of us would carry that cross? They're having a hard Sunday, aren't they? And believers across the world, in the Middle East, in North Africa, and Asia, carry that cross daily. And that's not a cross that God has called us to carry yet. But each and every one of us carry our own particular crosses. And like Peter and the other disciples, when we're called to carry that cross, we often get angry, or confused, or um, hopeless, or even fearful. And Jesus invites you to carry it, and like a father watching a kid struggle, he says, you can carry this so you can grow, because it's the only way you're going to grow. And there's a lot of risk there. There's a lot of challenge. And still, Jesus invites you to carry your cross. So this morning, I want to talk about what does it mean to carry your cross well? What does it mean to suffer well? What does it mean to grieve well? What does it mean to suffer loss well? We'll start with what it doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean faking joy or happiness. It doesn't mean that. I had a friend of mine in California who's going through some tough stuff. And people would come up to him and say, how are you doing? He'd say, I'm doing, doing well. Sometimes he'd even say, I'm living the joy of the Lord. We're like, wow, what a great guy. He's doing great. Problem was, he wasn't doing great. He just felt like he had to be doing great, like that was his Christian duty to do, be great, to be fine, right? And then months later, the dude crashed because he wasn't getting any help from anyone because he told everyone he was fine. And so to grieve well, to carry your cross well, does not mean faking it until you're making it, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean faking joy or happiness. But the opposite is true. It doesn't mean lifelong pessimism either. God does not call you to be Eeyore. It's high. Whatever. Right? This is carrying your cross well. It's facing life in all of its harsh reality. Not minimizing it or denying it. It's facing life in all of its harsh reality with an underlying eternal hope. That's what it means to carry your cross well. And so how do we do that? I have a few ideas. The first set right here. It means to embrace biblical suffering. Embrace biblical suffering. This is not to embrace either Eastern version of suffering or Western perspective of suffering. So an Eastern perspective of suffering is karma, right? So if bad things happen to you, then you must have done something either in this life or a previous life to deserve it. Now, no one will say that to you here in America, but they'll struggle with it. And you'll hear it in phrases like this. How many of you have ever gone through like a tough time and someone has said to you, wow, I don't know why this is happening to you. Has anyone ever said, have you heard that? That's an Eastern perspective. That's karma. What they're saying is, you are a nice person. This shouldn't be happening to you. Right? That's an Eastern perspective. It's not a biblical perspective. And perhaps you've felt that yourself. You're going through a tough time. You're like, why is this happening to me? That's an Eastern perspective. The opposite is a Western perspective. And the Western Western perspective is this. Avoid all suffering at all costs. Just, Just get away from it. So whatever it takes to not suffer, do that. Right? Because in the West, here in America especially, we are uncomfortable with suffering. We don't like it. When people or with people who are suffering, we get uncomfortable. Right? And so we'll say stupid things to try and make them feel better right away. Right? Because we're uncomfortable with it. The problem is, is when we short circuit, when we find quick fixes for suffering, we feel better in the short term, but have long term effects that are more detrimental because we've short circuited the growth that God's intended for us. And so the biblical perspective of suffering is neither Eastern karma nor Western avoidant. Rather, God calls us to do do this. The next slide here. He says, embrace the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is in control and he will see you through. 
And when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you are in God's gymnasium. And you are getting a workout. If, if you want to work out, if you want to develop, you know, massive biceps, if you want to develop elite endurance, you gotta, you gotta work out. You just gotta do it. And the bigger and stronger and faster you want to get, the more you've got to work at it. It comes naturally a little bit to some, but if you want to be elite, you've got to work at it. There's no other option. So if you want to develop massive mercy, if you want to develop firm forgiveness, if you want huge hope, there are only two ways to get that. Just two. The first is this, that you get out of your comfort zone and you hang out with people who are in need of mercy and hope. In other words, you get in their gym and you spot them while they're lifting and you pace them while they're running. And in the words of the great movie Lord of the Rings, as Sam says to Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can't carry you. Right? So that's one way to develop mercy and hope and compassion and courage is you hang out with people who are in God's gymnasium. And the second way you develop it is when God puts you in the gymnasium. And it's hard. And there's no quick fixes. But when you're in there, God is developing mercy compassion and courage and hope in you. So I want to give you a little exercise here. Think of the most courageous, compassionate, hopeful, mercy-filled person that you know. Think of the most Christ-like person that you know. Take some time to think about that person until you get that person's image in your head. promise you, that person has gone through brokenness and renewal. I promise you that. That person has accepted the sovereignty of Jesus. Or as Tim Keller put it this way, he said this, when we endure suffering with all the patience we can muster, we honor God as Father, and that glorifies Him. We embrace the sovereignty of Jesus. But we also embrace the suffering of Jesus. Here's something that no other religion or philosophy uh, can say. That Jesus suffers with you. Think of all the stuff you've gone through in life. All the harsh realities you've had to face in your life. And whatever those things are, Jesus has already gone through them. Already. Jesus knew poverty. He was born in a poor family. And he was a poor person. Jesus was marginalized. And Jesus knew what it was lived like to live under an occupied government with limited freedom. Jesus was abandoned by his close family and friends. He was unjustly arrested, he was tortured, and he was murdered. He was abused. Whatever you've gone through, Jesus has already gone through it too. Everything. 
Have you ever been going through a tough time and someone walks up to you and says, you're going to be okay. And you look at the person and you're like, yeah, sure, great, thanks. And then someone else walks up to you and you know this person has gone through a similar situation, right? And that person says to you, you're going to be okay. And then you start thinking, oh, you might be right. You're okay. I might be all right. Jesus suffers with you. And everything you've gone through, he's gone through too. But it gets better. Jesus doesn't just suffer with you. Jesus suffered for you. He put himself on the cross and suffered and died for your sin and for mine so that you might be free and forgiven and his. And he did it for you. How much would you endure? How much suffering would you go through for the sake of a child? So that so that, that child did not have to suffer. Quite a bit, right? You go through quite a bit. What about a best friend? How much suffering would you endure so that a best friend wouldn't have to? It'd be up there, right? How about an acquaintance? Someone you know, friendly with. Go through a little bit. Not a huge amount. What about an enemy? How much suffering would you endure for someone who stabbed you in the back? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for you. So we embrace the sovereignty, we embrace the suffering of Jesus. We embrace also the victory of Jesus. One day, one day cancer will be defeated. One day, Alzheimer's will be a forgotten memory. One day, justice will reign. And one day, Jesus himself will wipe every tear from your eyes, and there will be no more mourning, or crying, or sorrow, or pain, for the older order of things has passed away, and behold, everything is new. One day. So we embrace the victory of Jesus over sin and over death with his, with his resurrection. And that victory he freely gives to you. And the resurrection enables you to carry your cross because you know how the story, you know how your story ends. And it's good. says, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Jesus invites you to carry your cross well. To embrace 
biblical suffering, to embrace the sovereignty, the suffering, and the victory of Jesus because he loves you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for this season to remind us of your invasion of your creation. And you invaded it not as a conquering Lord, but as a humble baby. In the most humble of ways. Lord God, help us to carry our crosses well. Help us to walk with those who are carrying their crosses, Lord God. So they might know they not carry them alone. But you, Lord, are with us. You suffer with us. You suffered for us. And Lord Jesus, by your resurrection, have already provided the victory. Lord God, thank you. May we know your passion and your resurrection and every, every pore of our being So that we can live with courage and hope in your world. Until you come, Lord Jesus. Amen.